Folks, the holiday is just around the corner, and we here at Velo News have a great deal for you. You heard me talk about this on last week's episode of the podcast. If you sign up for an annual subscription of Velo News Print Magazine, you get a Velo Press book as a gift to give to a loved one. We have extended this offer. Uh, we have two book opportunities for you. If you sign up for Velo News uh, Magazine, you can choose from either Feed Zone Table or the Cyclist Training Bible. Now, the Cyclist Training Bible by Joe Friel, one of the most popular training books out there, has all the tools you need to plot a successful 2020 racing season. And Feed Zone Table by Biju Thomas and Dr. Alan Lim. It's a cool cookbook with more than 100 family-style recipes for meals that help athletes reconnect. So, uh, Feed Zone Table, Cyclist Training Bible, you can get one of those for free if you sign up for a print subscription to Velo News Magazine. Uh, for more information, go to velopress.com. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Bell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here. It is a sunny, warm day in Boulder, Colorado. We are speeding towards the end of the year. We're also speeding towards the uh, Cyclocross National Championships. That's right. USA Cycling's Cyclocross National Championships are going on this weekend in Tacoma, Washington. I hope there's rain, mud, crashes, great photography from this race of people covered in mud. Cyclocross Nationals is always such a fun event. Uh, we have a reporter, Jen C., who's going out there to cover the event. So stay tuned to velnews.com for a ton of updates and news from what go goes on at Crossnets. Uh, so with Crossnets coming up, I felt it was a great time to have Katie Compton, the 15-time national cyclocross champion on the podcast. Uh, Katie and I talked all about the upcoming race, who her competition is, and as well as some of the wider dynamics shaping international cross. So let's catch up with Katie Compton, and we will check in with you next week. Uh, my guest on the podcast this week is Katie Compton. Katie Compton is many things, lover of Rottweilers, driver of fast cars, and yes, a 15-time national champion in cyclocross. This coming weekend, Katie's going to be going for number 16 in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, Katie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, first off, I mean, how are you feeling about number 16? Um, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, my health is good. Um, like I've been racing fairly well in, in Belgium. Um, the racing in Belgium has been really fast this year. I think it's been faster than it's ever been. So I feel like the fitness is there and I'm healthy. So, um, I'm confident, but, uh, you never know. I, you know, like I've said in the past, like I just take one year at a time and think about the race as an individual one day race and try to do the best I can. And, both not have any equipment issues, um, no mechanicals, no flats, just have a clean race. Yeah, I feel like we've been having conversations about the Katie Compton streak. Like the like the streak of streak conversations now goes back <laughs> like five or six or seven years where it's like, oh, well, you know, what about, you know, what about this contender this year and this challenger this year? And I, I wonder if something if you've spent much time thinking about like, well, what would it take for the streak to end at this point? Would it take like, you know, injury, illness, catastrophic something? Like, what do you think would it would take for, you know, a number 16 to not happen? 
I mean, any of that could happen. And honestly, any of that could have happened in years past. Um, I do. I mean, I am a consistent racer and I'm talented, so I've got that on my side. Um, but also there's been luck involved as well. Like, I don't think you can win 15 in a row without having some luck on my side. So there's that. But, uh, you know, everyone, people are getting stronger. Katie is riding really well. Clara Hansinger is riding really well. Um, and on every year I just, I just wonder, you know, if this is going to be the last one. Um, I try to do everything in my power for it to not be the last one, but I'm definitely, it's going to, it's the time is going to come. I'll say when it's going to end. Um, I'm just going to try to keep it as long as possible. Yeah. I mean, you said that, you know, luck comes into play with keeping a streak like that alive. How about confidence? What role do you think has confidence played in, you know, being able to be perfect or as close to perfect as you need to be at that national championship race? Um, that's part of it. Um, I think I've just been a confident racer pretty much my whole career. That's not something I've had to work on really. Um, I'm confident, but yet I also am realistic in what my capabilities are. And I think the combination of both where I'm not going to, I know what I can do. I know what I'm capable of. Um, and, and that brings a certain amount of confidence. Um, but I also know that I have to do everything right. And I'm, I'm not going to get cocky at all. Um, I carry a quite a bit of humility with me just because I've been beaten enough times and suffered in enough races to know that, you know, we all have good days and we all have bad days. And, uh, I'm definitely going to appreciate those good days. Um, you know, as much as I can, especially as I'm getting older, there's not as many good days in front of me. So I'm definitely, um, confident, but, uh, also realistic and know I still need to have a great race and, um, you know, pedal hard and ride smooth. Yeah. That topic of confidence came to mind when I read this feature story that Chris Case wrote about you in the September, mm -hmm. October issue of VeloNews.com, yeah. where he wrote about the 15 wins and he went and he talked to all of the different women <laughs> who have finished second to you over the years. And, you know, they talk about your skill and they talk about your preparation and the power and, you know, the, um, physical, uh, aspects of your racing. But I do feel like there's something that comes out in a lot of these interviews, which is like, you know, it's, it's a, maybe a little bit of an intimidation factor of just when someone like you has won this race and found ways to win this race consistently year after year after year. Um, some of these women who are, you know, amazing athletes and strong mm -hmm. in their own right. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's, a, there's a little bit of psychological intimidation that goes into that. It feels like. I think so. But honestly, I don't think that's from my doing. I think that's just from years and years of consistency. Um, and I think the intimidation part that kind of comes along with winning a lot of races, um, and being good at what you do. Um, I mean, I feel that every single time, like I've lost to Marianne Voss too. Like I've gotten silver plenty of times at worlds <laughs> and tried really hard to win and getting beaten by somebody else where it's like, um, I know what that's like and I know how hard it is. And I know that, uh, certain people are just hard to beat on certain days. Um, and it's hard to put it all together and have that perfect day. Um, and luckily I've been able to do it fairly consistent, fairly consistently, but I'm also aware of the, and uh, <laughs> of the fact that it can end pretty quickly too. So, um, have there been riders then over your career that you, that, that have had that almost intimidation factor towards you or the riders that you have looked at, especially on the international circuit and been like, Oh man, like she just, she's, she's so dang dialed, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, when you're racing internationally, and you're at the, you know, shoot, we're racing, um, you know, the best race in the world every single weekend in Belgium. So you know where you stand um, and you know kind of what day you have to have to get on the podium. And uh, it's hard. 
Um, and yeah, I think that intimidation factor comes along when you've got somebody who, um, is just such a great racer. They're strong. They're technically suave. Um, they got everything going for them and it's hard to beat those kind of riders. So yeah, it is, it is the intimidation factor is part of it, but I, I think as an athlete, it's best to just focus on what you can do and your abilities and what you're good at and your strengths and, you know, what you can do to have that, that perfect day. Um, not, you know, not worrying about how good everybody else is because that's kind of out of your control. You just have to have, you know, strength on that day. You you brought this up at the top of the conversation, but talking about the dynamics on the world cup this year, we've seen Mm -hmm. this influx of really fast Dutch youngsters, riders Mm -hmm. like, uh, Celine Alvarado, uh, Yara Kastelein, Anna Marie Wurst. Uh, it just seems like (laughs) the competition at the front of the race is just that much harder than it's ever been. I mean, that's just from someone watching the races. How has it felt differently being in the races? No, it feels like that being in the race. <laughs> I look up and I see a line of six Dutch riders and they're all like drilling. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is not easy. And like the amount of suffering I've gone through like this year, last year I was sick pretty much the whole year. So that was a lot of suffering to go slow, but this year it's suffering to go fast. And I'm just like, it, it's definitely different. And I mean, if you miss a, miss a turn, miss a, ah, oh, sorry, mess up a turn or, um, you know, mess up a technical section, you'll get passed by five riders. You can easily lose, you know, move from fourth to 10th in like three turns if you, if you struggle on a section. So you've got to be on top of your game, both fitness wise, as well as technically in order to, you know, to maintain that your place at the front. So it's, um, it's been hard. And I mean, it's a good hard. I like the challenge and I like pushing myself and I like, you know, racing that hard. Um, and I'm hoping it's going <laughs> to make me fast at nationals again. Now, how does that dynamic though, compare to the world cups of 10, 15 years ago when it was like Daphne Vandebrand and Hanka Kupfernagel and some of these really talented Dutch and German riders, but then it seemed like the depth maybe fell off a little bit. How do the race, how do the races differ from today compared to those days? Um, there's definitely, it's a deeper field. There's definitely a deep, deeper talent pool. And a lot of the riders are quite a bit younger. So they've got a lot more energy. Um, you know, back 10, 15 years ago, I was racing against most people who were in their thirties. Um, and I was, I was on the young side then at my late twenties. And now, I mean, some of the good girls are 17 or 18. They're still juniors technically. Um, and so I think cross, it does suit somebody who has a ton of energy. And then also like, you know, just enough quick twitch muscles to be a good sprinter and good technically, but have the endurance to go hard the whole time. Um, it's, it's definitely different now. And, and that's like, it's the way women's crosses progress. It's the way, the way we've wanted women's cross to progress. Like the reason why we're pushing for equal race time and equal prize money and more TV coverage and more respect, because, you know, the women are racing is getting better. The fields are getting deeper. Um, we have more opportunities for women and we can now see it because, you look at the depth of the field and the speed of the field and the talent of the field. And, um, and it's, it's made a huge progress even in the last five years. Why do you think this is happening now? Um, what um, are the factors you think that have contributed to, you know, this influx of young, super fast, uh, 18, 19, 20 year olds coming all coming in right now? I mean, was it like the popularity of the sport five, six years ago? Is it the introduction of junior fields? I mean, why are so many women getting into the sport or at least coming into the sport at a high level right now? I think it's the TV coverage helped, um, for sure. And then the prize money increasing has helped, which actually between the TV coverage and the prize money, there's more money in the sport, more attention for the sport brings more sponsors to the sport. But yes, also the fact that they're bringing on the junior U23, 
um, categories, that's helped a ton because federations and countries are now looking to develop younger riders and give them opportunities earlier. Um, and that all just helps develop riders, um, more efficiently, I guess, and sooner. Um, I mean, I didn't have those opportunities. I didn't start racing cross till pretty much as end of college. And, um, there wasn't a junior category. There's barely a U23 category in the U S. Um, and it really wasn't a popular sport until you're in your late twenties, early thirties. Um, and so it, it's great to see the different opportunities that the girls have now to, you know, be racing at the you know top level when they're 16, 17. Um, just amazing how they're going to be, you know, 10 years from now with, with all this racing in their legs. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's an awesome dynamic and, you know, had talked to Helen Wyman uh, last year about the introduction of the junior women's category and some of these cross races and how it's getting more women into the sport and how there's a lot more cross specific athletes. There's something I do miss though, about those old days when cross seemed to be the, like, it was like the mixing ground between the mountain bikers and the gals from road racing. And, you know, you who had this track and road background or, you know, background in all of them. And it was like, you threw them into the snow globe, you shook it up and you saw <laughs> who, uh, who came out on top. And, um, I used to love to watch some of those old battles like Oh four, Oh five, Oh six. What do you remember about, uh, American cross in, you know, and what was going on in American cross in, uh, in those days? I mean, I kind of remember the same thing that you remember, kind of like the nostalgia of having, um, so many riders from different disciplines all come together in the winter to race each other. Um, or not necessarily their, um, strength, I guess their discipline strength. So I kind of miss that. I kind of miss, um, it's hard to say actually, but I, I think, I think it's just what you said. It's missing the, um, fact that people didn't necessarily focus on cross. Um, it's just everybody coming together to race in the winter and to see how everybody's fitness is and, and kind of what their skill set is too. It's always fun to kind of see if somebody's, you know, good at time trialing, but also, you know, can ride their bike well in the snow. Um, it's, yeah, that was interesting to watch. But now like with cycling, especially on the women's side, a lot of the women are racing all the disciplines and they're good at all the disciplines. Um, so, you know, they race cross, they do mountain bike, they do road. Um, some even do the track, um, you know, racing all those disciplines gives you a wonderful skill set for being good on the cross bike. Um, so it's, it's fun to see how much support the younger riders are getting, the fact they can race the disciplines, the fact that there's, you know, teams now that support road riders and cross riders and mountain bike riders, and it might be all the same sponsors across the board. So you have that continue continuity between road to mountain to cross. Um, and I think it just makes riders better riders faster and, um, um, technically good. Yeah, I've been impressed with the depth of the U.S. field this year, even though I, you know, in, in taking sort of a temperature check with American Cross with some of the riders online, I've definitely heard a lot of critique of, you know, the American series and the lack of a unified series and how the talent seems to be spread out everywhere. And I thought it was interesting that, like, you know, Katie Keogh went to Europe uh, this year for pretty much the entire season um, because, okay. you know, it seemed like the U.S. maybe it was because the U.S. scene isn't as cohesive as it used to be or mm -hmm. just her, her uh, you know, her goals are more over there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you made that decision a few years ago. What were the elements that factored into you wanting to um, base most of your competition schedule overseas versus in the United States? Um, a big one was the TV coverage. Um, I get a lot more attention and my sponsors get a lot more attention when you got half a million viewers in Belgium. And then, I mean, that doesn't even include the live streaming and what the, you know, U S and Canadian audience can watch. Um, and so that helps a bunch. 
Um, but also the competition. Um, I just wanted to race technical courses against like the top women in the world every weekend to get better. Um, and then also the jet lag. I just got too old to fly back and forth six times a year. Um, I really started noticing it. And like when I was in my 20s and early 30s, I didn't even know what jet lag was. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I was a little tired, but I always slept when I was tired and I didn't worry about it so much. Um, my performance was fine. Um, but yeah, the older I get, the more I'm just like a week on either side of travel and I can't train because I'm just so tired. Um, I'm just losing too much training time. So I had to pick and choose where um, what I wanted to be good at. And I want to do well at the World Cups. And I want to do well at some of the European races. And I had the goal to win the DVV um, that first year I did it. And luckily I did. Everything came together that season. Um, but yeah, there's certain goals I wanted to accomplish that I couldn't accomplish if I was based stateside. Um, so that's why I did it. You know, when younger uh, American racers talk to you about wanting to go race over in Europe full time, what are some of the pieces of advice that you give them? Um, I think you need to find support. That is huge. Like a mechanic you can trust, um, a good support network, um, a place that you can live that you're comfortable with, um, with the training's good and you, you feel like it's a second home. So it makes being, you know, out of the States easier. Um, but a lot of it is just feeling comfortable where you are and knowing the training grounds and then, um, getting comfortable going to the races. It's, it's a big change from the U S to Belgium and kind of figuring everything out. Um, luckily everybody's getting a lot nicer and a lot more accommodating. Um, and then, you know, the more they know you, the easier it is for everything, (laughs) for parking, for support, for, you know, race help. Um, all that gets easier, the more you're over there. So it just, the Belgians are, wonderful people that just take a little bit of time to get to know you. But once they get to know you, they open up. Um, it's just, it's a, it's kind of a tough kind of crowd to get into until you, you know, people. Um, and then they, then they, then they welcome you with open arms, but there's definitely a little bit of standoffishness until, um, you're there and you're, comfortable and they can accept you. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely felt that just as a journalist going over there with a lot of sort of side eye and a lot of, Oh, well you don't, Oh, this is natural. You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, do you have any anecdotes or stories from some of your early years going over there about the, the challenges you faced on that end? Um, I think what gets me is the parking. Um, you know, this is my 12th year there and uh, that's, it's, it's not as much of a hassle now. Um, but that's because we have a mobile home. So in year, you know, we've had a mobile home this year. We had a mobile home last year. And so that's what, two out of the 12 years. The first 10 years, like, especially I borrowed the USA Cycling Van majority of the time. And we pull up in the USA Cycling Van and they're like, where's your parking pass? Who are you? Are you supposed to be here? And now with a mobile home, we don't even stop. They just wave us through. And I was like, really? So the parking pass is technically a mobile home. It's not like a race van. It's not a team team sponsored on a car. It's just like, if you have a mobile home, they just wave you through and don't, no questions asked. You don't have to stop. There's like, Oh yeah, there's a, that's where elite parking is. Make yourself at home. I just find that funny. It's like, how come it was such a hassle for 10 years? And then now they don't even stop us. I love um, it. So and- for all those fans out there, if you want to have primo parking at the world cups, <laughs> just rent a, rent a motor home when you're over there. <laughs> rent a mobile home. Yeah, exactly. So um, I just find that interesting. And I mean, our mobile home, it's, it's from Alpha Mobile Home. So there's no, we don't have any stickers or um, wrapping on it. It's just a plain mobile home. So I just find it funny. It's like, it's not like I have pictures of me on it. So they let me in anyway. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, there's big changes planned for European Cross in 2020. Yeah. Um, 
Flanders Classics, which owns the Tour of Flanders and Gent Wevelgem and another of other other big classics, yep. has taken over management and ownership of the World Cup series. And mm-hmm. they have, mm-hmm. I believe, is it 18, 16 or 18 World Cups planned for next year? They uh, have 16 dates available. Uh-huh. I think they're pretty certain on 14 of those will will be World Cups. Um they're, pro- they're supposed to make final decisions on December 15th for the dates. And then we won't actually know anything till world championships when they announce this world cup schedule. So technically I don't really know what's going on. And the people I talk to in the know don't know what's going on. So I think everyone's going to have to sit tight and kind of wait till December 15th to know how many world cups and then for worlds to know exactly, um, what's going on. So I wish I could help more with that, but I think, uh, it's a tough one. And I don't know how that's going to work out, especially because, you know, say there's 14 World Cups and they're every weekend from October through January. I mean, Americans can't even stay there for that long because we need work visas if it's more than 90 days, you know, or vacation visas. Like it doesn't it's going to be really hard for non-US EU riders to actually commit to all those World Cups. Um, so I'm not sure what they're going to do if they're going to say we can drop so many of them. Um or where they can, you know, drop the worst results if we only have to do maybe 10 of those 14. I'm not quite sure how they're going to set it up. I'm kind of curious to see how that works out. Yeah, I'm also curious to see how it might impact the economics of cyclocross in general, because if you have that many races and they're every weekend, like you said, basically throughout the entire competition calendar, what does that mean for the DVV series and some of these other series? Um, And what does it mean for the athletes who rely on start money from some of these other series? Like the World Cup does not pay start money, but DVV and some of these other races do pay start money. And I know that that is a pretty big incentive. And that's that's a big way that, you know, athletes like you are able to make a living racing cyclocross full time. Um, I'm curious if that is a worry of yours at all. It is. It's something that like all the athletes are thinking of. And honestly, the ones who are going to be affected the most by those start contracts is Matthew and Walt, Walt, um, the top men, because they're the ones who are making the biggest start contracts. Um, so they're going to be hurt the most. My issue is like, if you don't get start contracts, you're just waiting for world cup prize money to come in and you have no idea when that comes in or even if it's going to get paid. Um, and so you might get a check in May for the overall world cup, but that's in May and that's doesn't cover the bills that you have to pay six months previous to that. So it's kind of like, you've got to wait to get paid and you got to spend all this money in order to do so. But then you also have to get good results. So you can't even bank on, a you know, given amount of money. And so that means the sponsors have to step up and kind of pay all that money up front, hoping their athletes can kind of make some of that on the backside. Um, so that's tough. And then you've got the DVV and the Super Prestige um, that are really great series. People love watching this series. They're good money. It's great racing. Um, they're going to be hurt. So maybe, um, you know, B racers can do some of those series while they race to do the World Cups. But then again, if you've got, there's also rules where you can't have C1s and C2s on the same weekend as a World Cup or the same day of the World Cup in the same region. So it's like, I don't know. I, I'm looking at the rules. I'm looking at the schedule. I'm thinking about the money on it. And I don't know how they're going to make it work to kind of please everybody and make it something that the riders are happy with. And if the riders aren't happy, they don't have a race to put on, technically. Like, we have to work together. The promoters have to work together with the racers to make sure the racers get what they need as well as the promoters can make some money at this. So I don't know. I'm just going to wait and see <laughs> kind of how it works out. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I looked at it and I thought, wow, this would be great for the sport of cyclocross if the sport of cyclocross was twice as big as it is right now. But, um, you know, having that many World Cups and having, yeah, like you said, it kind of, you know, they, they squash some of these other series that are really cool and have some race venues that people love to race and yep. and provide a good economic incentive to the riders, um, yep. you know, that, that, that's creating headaches where there weren't headaches before. And, and like you mentioned, we, and we've talked about this before, um, you think that like a World Cup has its stuff together from an economic standpoint, but as we've seen sometimes, that's not always the case. And sometimes these World Cup promoters are sending out checks months or years or not at all after. Yeah, or not at all. <laughs> or like, not at all. Yeah, sometimes I'll randomly get a check from USA Cycling and I'm like, where's this check coming from? And then I see like on the bottom, it says like, oh, French World Cup from four years ago. And I'm like, really? Like, how am I just getting paid for this now? Like, it's so long ago. Like, I don't remember what result it was or what check I should get, you know? Um, We still haven't gotten paid from the German World Cup from two years ago. I don't know if anybody has. Um, And that's not atypical. Um, And so, and then a lot of times, like, unless you have a Belgian bank account, it's really hard to get paid at all. Mm. So, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff they need to work out um, to make it a good series um, and something that people want to follow. Like my thing is like if they really want to make it like a 16 race series, why don't they maybe follow what Formula One does and do a legit world champion series where you race, I think what world, what Formula One has, what, 18 races mm-hmm. during the season, maybe 20, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, they got the constructors championship and they got the drivers championship and, you know, it's a race the entire season with a worldwide event um, that names the world champ driver and the world champ constructor at the end of the season. And it's legit different variety of races and, um, time zones and, um, you know, races during the season that can, uh, pretty much say who the you know best driver is. And like, if they want to mimic something like that, that would be different. And that would allow, um, you know, other racers to do like other promoters have races in between the world cup races too. So it's just also tough for, um, Riders who want to maybe come into the season, like like Lucinda Brand, who has a strong road season and then, you know, comes in for, you know, a couple months of the cross season and do, does really well. What is she just going to do half the World Cups and then have a, a sucky start spot? You know, like, yeah, it, there's not there's not good rules written yet to know how it's going to unfold. So I think we just need to wait. <laughs> and I think that might eliminate an element, especially in women's cross that I love to watch, which is the second half of the season after nationals when, you know, Lucinda Brand and Yolanda Neff and Pauline Ferrand Prevost and some of these great riders who tend to sit out the first half come in Mm -hmm. and always uh, mix up the races and make world championships that much more um, compelling and exciting in those last World Cups, compelling and exciting because, you know, they're coming in fresh and, um, you know, and, and really shaking up the women's races. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I think sometimes it'll happen with the men's race too, depending like, um, what riders want to jump in there, like Steve are racing a couple races to get ready for classics season. And wow, you never know. He might do the same thing once he's recovered, you know, just do some cross races to kind of set up for classic season. Um, but in then like those guys would still start fourth or fifth row. Um, and it's really hard to move up unless you're, you know, Matthew Vanderpool. It's, it's almost impossible to move up in the men's field. So yeah, it's tough. 
So, Katie, we talked about the changes in dynamics in, in women's international cross with these youngsters from the Netherlands coming in and kicking everyone's butt. But it does seem yeah. that we're still like like we're still living in the era of Sana Kant, at least at the World Championships. Yeah. She's won the last three years. And, you know, you have now raced in these different eras of dominance by by different riders yourself. Yeah. Mariana Voss, Daphne Vanderbrand, Hake Kupernagel, Sana Kant, whoever. Uh, how does Sana's overall skill as a rider and racer compare to the high points of some of these other great women who you battled against in years past? I think Sana probably has the best skill set of all of them. Um, she's mentally strong and she's race suave. So she knows, you know, what to do and when to do it. Um, but she's really technically good. She's good in the sand. She's a strong rider in general. And when she wants to win, like she finds like a sixth gear. Um, it's pretty fun to watch actually. Um, but I think like, from years past, I do think Sana is the stronger, strongest of the ones that I've raced against, just because I think she's got all the tools to be a great cross racer. Where Marianne, um, you know, she's a super speedy rider and great sprint, um, but not necessarily a great mud rider or great sand rider. Um, Honka was really good in a straight line, but technically not that strong. Um, Trying to think, what which was the others? Oh, Daphne. Daphne was actually really good at all of it. Um, I think for her, she just lacked a little bit of um, pure horsepower. Um, but Daphne was really smart technically as well as, um, good technically too. Um, but I think she also struggled with some breathing and allergies like I do. So I think some days it's hard to know if she could have done better had she been able to breathe better. Seems like Sana is usually able to turn it on for that second half of the season too, where we see her maybe start strong and then take some, you know, not be as strong at the world cups during the middle of the season and then really peak towards the end as well. Yep, she does. And she trains through quite a few races. Um, she also has a level of motivation at certain races that are, <laughs> you know, her motivation can be high or low depending on the race. Um, and you can see it when she's racing. Um, but when she gets angry, she just she just puts the throttle down. And it's pretty great, <laughs> actually, because like even races when I'm not racing, I'm just watching it. I can see her racing and then I can see her when she just kind of gets over it and cranky and she's like, all right, I'm done. I'm just going <laughs> to um, and you can see it. She usually does it like the last lap and a half or so, maybe the last lap. Um, but she's she's just a great racer. She's got a lot of um, you know talent for it as well as just good skill. And uh, she's been doing it a long time. So uh, she might be, I would say, getting older. But that's only comparative to like the young Dutch girls because she's still only like maybe thirty, I think, maybe thirty one. <laughs> so I'm like, she's really not that old. She's just older than the Dutch young youngins who are like 23. And she's at least 15 years left. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we raced Worlds in 2007, I think she was 16 and I was 27. Um, and that was my first Worlds. And I think that was her first or second Worlds. So we have the same amount of experience. She's just 10 years younger. So looking ahead <laughs> at uh, Tacoma, Katie, what kind of conditions are you hoping for? What uh, conditions best suit Katie Compton's run at number 16 in 2019? Mud. Honestly, mud is something I love and I'm good at. I'm strong at. I, I really enjoy racing in it. I enjoy hitting ruts and I enjoy just the uh, the mental focus it takes to ride in the mud. Um, so that would be great for me. And like Tacoma, you know, Pacific Northwest in December, um, rain and about 45, 50 degrees is, is pretty much the weather. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping for mud. I don't think it's going to be frozen. I don't think it's going to be dry. It may just be soft. It kind of depends on how much rain they get this week. Um, but for me, um, I just like mud courses. I think they're fun. 
Well, everyone, if it starts to rain and you start to see the track get muddy, just know that Katie Compton's confidence is getting that much higher as she tries to win number 16. <laughs> I'm going to try to do everything I can just have a clean, strong race. And uh, yeah, we'll see. It's it's funny because like last year, as soon as I won, everyone's talking about Sweet 16. I'm just like, can I just enjoy this win and not <laughs> like think about next year already? Um, but it's amazing the amount of people that are already saying stuff. And I'm just like, just we got to race the race. And, you know, it's every every year it's new so new comp d different competition stronger riders different conditions so um i'm just gonna do the best i can and and you know hope for another one well we will be watching the race is this sunday it's uh usc cycling's national cyclocross championships outside tacoma washington katie thank you so much for making time for us today and best of luck this weekend oh you're welcome and thanks for having me awesome